there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Space Shuttle, the Challenger, made its first quick trip into space while Disney opened their first Asian park, Tokyo Disneyland. President Reagan signed a bailout for Social Security for the bargain basement price of $165 billion with a B dollars. And finally, Stern Magazine made headlines when they discovered a 60-volume personal diary written by Adolf Hitler only to suffer a massive publicity blow when it turned out to be a hoax. It's a weird month, so buckle up and let's get busy with April of 1983. I'm Drew McQueenie. Welcome to 80s All Over, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Before we begin, we have to always thank our Patreon subscribers. It is such a nice feeling to know that people like your stuff enough to throw you a few bucks a month. And even if you're not a patron, we appreciate you listening to the show. Word of mouth is a massive help. If you can rate and review the show on iTunes or any place that you listen to podcasts, please do so. One of the things that I'd like to do is I'd like to acknowledge that we can kind of stop now being surprised that 1983 isn't the worst thing that's ever happened to us. I I think we've had two or three pretty decent titles a month, sometimes more, and I think that continues through the rest of the year. Uh, Looking at uh, the 2018 releases so far, I don't think we've had as many good or really good films at this point in 2018 as we did by April of 83. Uh, And despite the fact that we have come across some buried treasure and some uh, films that we knew were quite good, I'm still prepared to stick by my assertion that this is the weakest year of the decade. I am willing to change my mind on that if presented with additional evidence, however. Now, like 1983 is that kid that you went to school with who came to school like with the sandals and the socks. And you always thought he'd be like horrible to hang out with. But then you realized when you finally did hang out with him, it's just his parents made him dress that way. And the kid was actually pretty okay. I I feel like 1983 has been that year. It's been that kid for a while. And 1983 is not bad, man. Don't be so mean. You know who probably wasn't much fun to hang out with? Who? Fassbender. <laughs> um, actually, before we get to Fassbender, because, dude, this is not only our last big Fassbender title. We've got one more, but this is the last theatrical original feature that he made. It's a hell of a send off. But first, back in theaters this month, did you go see Duel when it played theatrically? Okay, get, 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 get back in the bus, please. Please, come on. Come on, back in the bus. No, I've never seen Duel on a big screen. I have only seen it uh, on uh, VHS and DVD, and it is uh, as good as I remember. 
Uh, and I think it's uh, ironic that Mr. Spielberg is now out making the rounds, kind of being a little snooty about what qualifies as a TV movie versus a regular movie when uh, his first TV movie got the, uh, the honor of uh, being transferred to film. My parents took me to see this in the theater because they were fans for when it aired on TV and it had not played TV for me to see it again. So when this came out, they got really excited and we went. It was a colossal theatrical experience. I'm really happy that's how I was first exposed to it. I've always had trouble thinking of it as a TV film because it plays so beautifully on the big screen. Yeah, and you could just see the executives going, oh, my God, Spielberg. He's just everything he touches turns to gold. Wow, wow. Oh, he doesn't have anything for a couple months? Hey, let's re-release Duel in 1983. You'll notice they didn't do that with something evil. There's never been a major theatrical re-release of that. Yeah, dual special. And uh, it really is Jaws as a rough sketch. Like, you can see why they went, oh, my God. Yeah, you're the dude. You're a hit. <laughs> it feels like uh, when a good comedian is telling you a long and elaborate joke, you're thinking to yourself, how long can this comedian stretch this joke out and, and still deliver a good punchline? And that's what a movie like Duel feels like is he's being chased by a truck. That's the movie. And then you're an hour in and you're like, how much longer can he possibly sustain it's a guy being chased by a truck, and it just it's a lot of fun. So, Scott, how about a quick game of dice before we talk about Quarrel? Sur le vengeur qui accoste, Querelle. Il n'est pas matelot. Il est tous les matelots du monde. Querelle. Après Midnight Express, c'est le nouveau voyage en enfer de Brad Davis. Querelle. C'est aussi le dernier et le plus étrange film de Rainer Werner Fassbinder. I'm going to just say I knew nothing about this film. I I was kind of stunned by its frank approach to homosexuality, uh, oh, mainly because it wasn't spoken about this openly in films very much in 1983. Subtlety is off the table for this movie. Based on a novel by Jean Genet, this is sex and drugs and murder and melodrama, and it is super overheated in its presentation. Yeah, it is uh, Franco Nero and Brad Davis in a bizarre stage-set noir-type story about a sailor who gets embroiled in a sleazy bar, murders, betrayal, carnal wagers. It's a leather daddy fairy tale, and there is a ton of gay sex in the film, and all handled fairly matter-of-fact, even though the film is shot almost like one from the heart. In fact, there's a couple of movies this month that are the same kind of super overheated palette, put in contrast to the fact that Fassbender's the guy who, during a sex scene, will show you the guy spitting on his hand. It is rough stuff at times, shot like a 30s studio musical with leather and muscles. Yeah, and it's unapologetic and unashamed about it. You know, uh, while I was impressed by the audacity and the bravery of the film, I wasn't very engaged by it. It is so stylized that I think it's kind of a tough sit. I think that's a lot of Fassbender. Either you're so consumed by the style and you get so pulled into the way he does this or you can admire the fact that there's a ton of effort in what he does and there's a ton of thought in it. And it's theatrical as all get out. It's clearly pulled from that three penny opera tradition. And it is very German in its theatricality. I do have one interesting question about this movie. Do you think that this film killed the career of Brad Davis? As I understand it, he didn't fit. Like he was a guy who was uneasy with Hollywood in general and uneasy with a lot of like mainstream stuff. Like he was a New York stage actor who, I think was drawn to very confrontational, very um, edgy stuff. So I don't know that he wanted that other career. I think Midnight Express was a perfect moment for him to be in the mainstream because that movie is 
incredibly confrontational. Brave performances, particularly by Brad Davis and Franco Nero. Uh, if all you know of Franco Nero is tough guy performances and and uh, actiony stuff, oh boy. We want to take a moment here to spotlight a film that unfortunately was next to impossible to track down, and it seems weird that that would be the case. It's a film called Heat Wave. When it's the hottest summer on record, emotions can run high. From the director of internationally acclaimed Newsfront, an explosive new motion picture. Every city has its victims. This city had a heat wave. This is the second film from director Philip Noyce, who you guys know from giant mainstream films like The Saint or his Jack Ryan movies. Dead calm. Like, he's a really gifted Australian filmmaker. Uh, this is based on a true story. Judy Davis, uh, coming off of My Brilliant Career and, and some other high-profile Australian films, it feels like this is a movie that should be preserved and readily available. You know, this is part of that new wave of Australian uh, cinema that was really one of the biggest moments for their industry. And I would think that these are the films that you want to make sure stay available. This, Starstruck, I would love to see these films in more ready circulation again, please. Now, this next one, this is a horror film that I swear to God, I thought I had seen. And then when I finally watched it for the pocket, not only have I never seen it, I think I had a totally different film in my head for what was supposed to be curtains. Behind every curtain, someone is waiting. Something is watching. I think I remember the trailer more so than the movie. This is a really dry and boring Canadian slasher about six actresses and John Vernon in a big house. And they start getting picked off, only it's not even as fun as that perfunctory description sounds. And it's because it's two different movies. There's the slasher movie, which is terrible. Flat out, one of the worst slasher movies we've talked about so far. Just boring. But then the other movie, which is about John Vernon and these six actresses, and he's a director who... I thought it was going to be Shot Corridor at first because Samantha Eggers is his lead actress. He's gotten financing for this movie. She's going to play somebody who goes insane. So he gets her committed to a mental hospital under the guise of research and then leaves her there. And he's going to go make the movie and he's going to cast one of these new actresses. So first of all, if you've ever seen a Scooby-Doo episode, congratulations, you know what's going to happen. But secondly, the actual stuff between Vernon and the young actresses there's a whole movie that could have been made there where I would have loved to have seen that performance from John Vernon without the horror film attached because he's pretty good. Does this movie kind of feel like a, a lazy remake of Suspiria? I can see how like somebody would watch that movie and go, okay, I have an idea and I know how I'm going to do this. There's A, there's no style to this thing. But B, I like enough of what John Vernon talks about in some of those scenes where he's talking about bravery and honesty and acting. And, and he kind of takes Samantha Eggers apart a couple of times as an actor. And that movie would have been so much better than the movie we were watching. I feel like he's one of those guys, kind of like when we get to Back to the Future 3, we'll talk about Christopher Lloyd never getting another romantic lead. John Vernon's one of those guys who got cast as one thing over and over and over. He's a really interesting actor, and I think he's got this amazing voice. I love John Vernon. Most people will know him as the nefarious Dean from Animal House. 
Can you do a John Vernon? I don't know if I can. Uh, I'll tell you what. I'm going to try to rev up to it because I met him once. And I did this thing where I didn't mean to greet him the way I did. I didn't see him coming. I was sitting in my car. My girlfriend was inside the grocery store, and I'm just behind the wheel, and I'm waiting for her. And I look up, and walking between the cars towards me, and he's going to walk right by my window, which is down. It's John Vernon. And I had about a second to make the connection between, holy shit, that's John Vernon. And out loud, I said, holy shit, Dean Wormer. And he stopped and started laughing. I said, son, I am more than Dean Wormer. And I was like, "Uh, yes, of course you are. And then I talked to him. He was really sweet. But he absolutely got typecast. And the one thing I love about this movie is there's a few moments where you realize that guy had so much in him. And boy, if you ever let him off the leash at all, he was hungry to do it. Drew, you said he was hungry. You know who else was hungry? The screwballs. Oh, God. At TNA High, the student body's got a lot more bounce to the ounce. Last holdout at TNA High. You know I always have a headache. It's the pussy factor. <laughs> if you're looking for something different, but can't quite put your finger on it, it's screwballs. Ah! Nice shot. Really? Trust me. This picture is disgusting. <laughs> You know, I have a theory that every film is someone's favorite film because in high school, I was friends with a guy who this was his favorite movie. I judged him. I judged him harshly. You know what? You, I'm going to call you Wapner from now on is how strongly you should judge him. This is a uh, Canadian Porky's knockoff set in the 1960s. It's about four obnoxious jerks and their whole plot, the entire film, is one log line. They want to see a specific girl's boobs. What's her name? What's her name? Purity Bush. <laughs> Unreal. The entire film is a slow motion sex crime. And every approach to how they're going to see her naked is horrible. They're horrible, horrible people. And so the movie takes like 20 minutes to put all these stupid stereotypes in detention. They all team up and decide that they're going to take down that snooty purity bush and see all her privates. Darn you. It feels like you are complicit in this leering piece of crap. Shakespeare's king leering, for God's sake. I, I will give this a slight counterpoint in that the movie has such a broad tone. It is trying to present this puerile stuff as if it's good squeaky fun. It's not. What was the one we saw a couple of weeks ago, the trauma one uh, first time? That is, they feel like roughly equivalent movies. And the difference is the first time manages to just be silly. Screwballs really does tip over into sleazy eventually. It's not a funny movie. That's for darn sure. Drew, I'm going to say it right now. We're going to be vetoing the sequel, Loose Screws. Yeah, that's coming. That's going to happen. All right. Scott, time for another Dick Richards movie. Yep. We've encountered Dick Richards several times so far. We've done Death Valley, mediocre at best slasher film. Watchable, but very basic. And if you were concerned that maybe that was just an off day for him, nope, because here he's taken a book by the author of Love Story and turned out a film that will slide right off your brain when you're done. Man, woman, and child. What's the matter? She never knew her husband had an affair. If it's any consolation to you, I swear to God, it's the only time I've ever been unfaithful. Could you choose between the sun 
you never knew you had. And the family you've always loved. I love you, darling. Martin Sheen. Blythe Danner. Man, Woman, and Child. Based on the novel by Eric Siegel. I don't, I'm not a big fan of Eric Siegel in general. Love Story, I think, is a load of crap. Uh, I think there are decent performances here. I do think Martin Sheen and Blythe Danner are good. But I think these people talk the way Eric Siegel wishes people talked, not the way people actually talk. Yeah, in Hallmark cards and arch mannerisms, it's it's very showy, stagey, I guess would be a good word. I was happy to see Craig T. Nelson pop up. Dick Richards' films are not terrible movies. It's like No, no, he's just it's, aggressively middle of the yeah, road. It's, okay, uh, that happened. And this is another one of those where, yeah, all right, there it is. I don't have much more to offer because it's so clearly not aimed at me. Uh, man, woman, and child at this point, you know, post-marriage, post-everything else, I, I would expect to be more engaged with that material. Eh, it doesn't feel real. A lot of it just feels very artificial, even though, ironically, it's trading in, in very painful and, and personal emotions. A, a lot of it just feels like window dressing. Good actors can't always save that. Uh, maybe back in 83, this felt more timely or more important another movie that i don't have a ton to say about la traviata yeah that's an opera Franco Zeffirelli, who obviously adores opera, uh, shot a film version of it with Placido Domingo that was released in 1982. It is a recording of a live performance. I do not feel like this is Zeffirelli making a movie. This is Zeffirelli expressing his love of this performance and this opera. It's a perfectly lovely record of it. If you are really into La Traviata and you want to hear Placido Domingo do it, he does, and it's pretty terrific. Beyond that, uh, there's not a lot going on here for non-opera Would you say fans. that it's cinematic or less cinematic than The Pirates of Penzance? Uh, I think less. I think Pirates of Penzance, they're at least playing the cartoon side of it. Our next film, wow. I <laughs> Every once in a while, we discover a film that just changes the way we look at cinema in general. And life. And pets. Yeah. And I think now, Drew, let's all settle down. I have some hot cocoa. Gather around our podcast program and talk about Hambone and Hilly. Okay, all adults out of the room. This is between us kids. There's a new movie called Hambone and Hilly about a dog who gets left behind and has to travel 3,000 miles all on his own. His adventures are filled with comedy, action, danger, thrills. But even for a dog, there's no place like home. I hope he comes back, Grandma. Oh, I hope so. Hambone and Hilly, the biggest little hero in America. Rated PG. Hambone and Hilly, I want to say this movie's quite silly. Dude, this is one of those films where it's an animal going from person to person, so you have an excuse to introduce a number of different actors. A very cute dog. And I got to assume all of these people were employed 
briefly. An old lady, Lillian Gish, the legendary. Glad she got a paycheck. She's not not a particularly interesting performance. And man, they do not shoot her well in this film. (laughs) But take what you can. And she loses her puppy. And it is a very cute dog. And the dog then goes from New York to L.A. through a series of misadventures that involve everybody from Candy Clark to Skipper from Gilligan's Island (laughs) to O.J. Simpson to Timothy Bottoms. Yeah. What? Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. And then it's a perfectly cheap, chintzy, slightly amiable kids movie. No modern kid would ever watch this. But if you were seven years old in 1983, you might have. But then... It gets really dark in Act 3. I think that's the Benji effect. I think Benji, Benji is hinged on a kidnapping, for Christ's sakes. There's a dog gets run over in this movie. Uh, uh, another guy gets shot. I'm like, like all of a sudden, it literally turns into Peckinpah for like three scenes and then turns back to Joe Camp again. It's bizarre. It is a really ragged, goofy movie. You know what else is ragged and goofy? Oh, yes, it is. All right, let's put our hands together because this one, I have an anecdote about this one. Because it's time for The Deadly Spawn. Oh, no, 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 no. What do you do when unknown terror surrounds you? What do you do when there is no escape? Nowhere to hide from being eaten alive. Anything stop these strange creatures. The movie real science fiction fans have been waiting for. The Deadly Spawn want you to see them at this theater soon. They need every person they can get. New from 21st Century Distribution. Rated R. Yeah, this is one of the most recognizable monster sculpts of the early 80s. And Fangoria fucking loved this monster. They loved pictures of this monster. And the sculpt is so crazy that you have to love it. The puppeteering, on the other hand, is insanely bad. (laughs) All right, let me ask you this, Drew. Explain how this film is all that much different from The Evil Dead or Peter Jackson's early films. This guy wishes he was Sam Raimi or young Peter Jackson. If you look, there's there's scenes in this movie where the walls are like papered with monster movie posters. Clearly, this guy grew up loving monster movies. People run from room to room. They close doors. Things beat on the doors. They either push somebody out or they open the door and get their head bitten off. And there's no sense through any of it that there is any actual danger or that there's any actual energy or forward motion. There's nothing that is compelling you to keep watching other than I want to see the silly puppet bite somebody's head off again. And that's all it is by the end of this film. Yep, I agree with every criticism you have, and I would even multiply some of them by two. But when it's doling out the splatter and the chompy teeth and the giant alien, as cheap as it looks, I still appreciated it. I still dug it. I love this monster, and you cannot have grown up in the 80s and not have seen 400 photos of this thing. I always like just the little bits of the monster itself. I think it is a shabby movie. (laughs) Yep, uh, fair enough. Uh, I remember this one being one of those forbidden fruit ones. With my friends, we would rent like the Halloweens and the Friday the 13th and anything else, and we felt perfectly safe watching those. This felt like one that we're like, ooh, we don't know if we if we're prepared to do that one, (laughs) you know, like faces of death or blood sucking freaks. We were it made us nervous. I love that. And then when you finally see it and you're like, oh, my God, I was afraid of that. Yeah. Yeah. And we watched this probably one night at like (laughs) two, three in the morning. 
I remember us digging it. I don't know if anybody uh, besides people of our approximate generation who would like want to just appreciate the the uh, evolution of low budget effects. Other than that, there's really not much to recommend Deadly Spawn, but I I kind of uh, appreciated what they were able to put together on what was probably $300. Okay, well, since we're talking about super cheap movies that deliver above their pay grade, hey, Scott, what do you think of 1990, The Bronx Warriors? They trust no one. They fear nothing. They walk with death. Those who follow them will survive. Those who challenge them will die. You will see the future. You will be afraid. The first to die will be the lucky ones. 1990, the Bronx Warriors they walk with death. I think it's a complete post-apocalyptic epic of carnage. Personally, I would not disagree with that. <laughs> I would think that if you were to go to Italy and you were to take the Warriors and combine it with Escape from New York and put it in an Italian blender and then pour that blender on a couple of street corners in New York City, you would get 1990 The Bronx Warriors. But don't take our word for it. We now take you live to Brian Salisbury of Junk Food Cinema. Take it away, Brian. So nobody, and I mean nobody, ignores intellectual property rights like the Italians. And that is my favorite thing about their spate of post-apocalyptic movies from the early 80s. I probably like none of them as much as 1990 The Bronx Warriors. This is a case of them taking Walter Hill's The Warriors and making it post-apocalyptic. Uh, Enzo Castellari, who is kind of the godfather of this genre, directs a movie uh, in which a policeman infiltrates the Bronx, which has, by this point, become a battleground for several murderous street gangs. Where it gets lost in translation is you have things in the Warriors like that really creepy baseball fury gang with their faces painted and they're wearing the baseball uniforms, and there's just something unsettling about them. 1990 Bronx Warriors takes that and goes, okay, but what if they were Bob Fosse dancers instead and thinks that that's a suitable analog? This movie does, however, boast what a lot of films from the Italian post-apocalyptic genre boast. Actor Fred the Hammer Williamson, who I can only imagine was on holiday in Italy for two weeks when he filmed the roughly 37 movies in the genre in which he appears. He plays sort of the Han Solo gang leader who is not really ready to pick a side. Whether that side belongs to the rebel leader, Trash. I'm going to repeat that. His name is Trash, played by Mark Gregory, or the evil police officer played by the great Vic Morrow. So in this movie, you have Fred the Hammer Williamson going up against Vic Morrow, which would be great if they weren't surrounded by the cheesiest, most ridiculous action, quote-unquote, set pieces you've ever seen. And a lot, and I mean this sincerely, a lot of flamethrowers. Possibly too many flamethrowers for one movie. Also, this movie begins with a lone jazz drummer on a beach. And I just love that they picked the Bronx because apparently in the early 80s in the Bronx, you could convince people that an apocalypse had happened without doing any set dressing whatsoever. It is nuts. It is beyond explanation, and it is not even the craziest entry in the Italian post-apocalyptic knockoff genre, but it is, in fact, my favorite. 
Was he just sitting by the computer waiting for us this entire time? That's really creepy. Yep. First off, whoever put out the Blu-ray deserves a pat on the back. They remastered this like it was Goodfellas. It's gorgeous. It looks It looks like it's Enzo Castellari's print. Like, this was sitting in his vault. I, look, it's a Warriors ripoff. Excruciatingly so. And I have a real soft spot for the Warriors which is already extremely goofy. So when you're ripping off the Warriors and you're making it exponentially goofier, you get into this place where I'm not supposed to take any of this shit seriously. And you've got a good cast. I like Fred Williamson in almost everything, and especially in this era. Man, Fred Williamson knew what he was doing. He showed up, and he would always you know, give it his all, and he was always, I think, really good in these movies. The great thing about Fred Williamson is that even when everything around him is cheap-looking, he is one of the people on screen who's like, nope, this is a spaceship. Like, you know, you buy he's in the post-apocalypse because that's what he's selling you. That's what I love about Fred Williamson is he shows up no matter what it is. And I, you know, Vic Morrow is in this and it is pretty good in this. It's a fine little Italian ripoff of better movies. And if you take it as that, if you walk in knowing exactly what you're about to watch, I, I think it is pretty entertaining. Mark Gregory, the lead, is he's he's uh, he's, oh, good Lord. Mark Gregory as trash. He's special. Oh, Uh, (laughs) man, there's bad acting. And then there's like, well, it's almost non acting like it's you have to watch because he's just pulling attention from other people on screen with this this weird presence of his. I don't know if good is the word, but he's something. Uh, And I did want to note, I believe George Miller stole this for Fury Road. 1990, the Bronx Warriors has gangs who travel with their own drummer. Nice. I think that's where he got it from. All right. So we're going to move from an Italian version of New York to a very strange vision of New York circa 1982 with a movie by Slava Sukerman that has gained a huge reputation over the years. It's about to come back out on Blu-ray. Let's talk a little bit about Liquid Sky. Same friends who who rented, uh, you know, all the Friday the 13th and Evil Speak and everything. We rented this one night thinking it was just a sci-fi horror movie. Oh, boy. Yeah, for a bunch of 15-year-old boys watching Liquid Sky. This feels like a film that you would go over to Ann Magnuson's apartment in, like, the early 80s. And Lou Reed would be there, and this would be what they'd put on. Liquid Sky is what would be playing in Rosanna Arquette's apartment in After Hours. That's the way this feels. This is a movie that is so downtown, artsy New York, and it is ambiguous sexual roles, and it is drugs, and... It's about an alien, tiny aliens in a little bitty, tiny flying saucer looking for heroin that comes from sexual contact. It lands on a building 
over the apartment of a androgynous woman who is good friends with an androgynous guy, both played by the same person. It's so funny that we're doing this one. We're doing The Hunger this month. We're doing... There's several films that kind of overlap in terms of how they feel like they could be that shared universe. This could be happening around... It feels like this could be happening in a club along with the opening scene of The Hunger, and then these two movies just go in different directions. But they're both in that same kind of weird New York. It's both appealing and frustrating. It's impressive and a little aimless, you know, audacious because you've never seen anything like it. And then, of course, part and parcel with audacity is sometimes it feels a bit indulgent. It has some amateurish performances, but it has some ideas in it that are absolutely fascinating. To me, it almost feels like the sci-fi art house eating Raul because this is a very funny movie, but it's a really odd funny movie. Like I can imagine there'd be audiences you would sit and watch this with where half the audience would laugh and half the audience would stare at them like something was wrong with them. Like Corel, it is a film that feels like, wait, this was 1983. This is, I guess, uh, for... People that were more attuned to what was happening, 1983 was more permissive and a little wilder than I realized because I still felt like the culture was very oppressive and anti-gay and there was a lot of just mainstream homophobia still. So these films really feel like they are beamed in from another planet in some ways. You know, what we're finding is obviously that the studios had one version of this, which was Making Love, a personal best, and foreign and independent cinema had films like Liana and this film, and Carell. The audacious ones are the ones that played the art houses. It was a, sort of an early cult item. I understand why there was a really hungry audience for this, because there's a lot of this that had to feel revolutionary if you saw it and you were living in, like, Kansas. I mean, this this had to really feel like this other world is calling to you, and holy crap, is that really what New York is like? I, I don't love Liquid Sky, but I do like it, and I think it's a, an impressive relic uh, of this era. It doesn't care if you like it or not. That's the kind of vibe I got from Liquid Sky. (laughs) So, hey, this next movie is one that I am really excited to talk about because uh, I think it is a career best performance from an actor who we don't celebrate enough. That actor being Bonnie Bedelia and the movie being a heart like a wheel. Everybody has one special dream. For most of us, it remains distant and unfulfilled. She dreamed of winning. She wanted to go where only a few men had ventured. Some made it, and some didn't. She challenged them all in the fastest and most powerful sport on Earth. You're going to go up against Garlitz? I'm going to win. And she became one of the most extraordinary champions of our time. The Shirley Muldowney story. Heart like a wheel. What I like most about this movie is that it's the only film I can think of that both of the stars' names are alliterative with <laughs> Actually, and they have a co-star, Bruce Barlow. So you have Bonnie Bedelia, Bo Bridges, Bruce Barlow all in this movie. Clearly, somebody's a big Superman fan. Bonnie Bedelia plays Shirley Muldowney, uh, one of the most famous female drag racers. And uh, this is an early film from Jonathan Kaplan, who would make a much bigger splash a few years later with The Accused. And this is a very straight up and down, some would say basic biopic that is helped immeasurably by the two lead performances. Bedelia is is great, and uh, Bo Bridges is, is also fantastic. It's a great marriage movie. I love movies that are about marriages where people learn compromise and they learn how to make 
their marriage work in a way that it doesn't matter what anybody else's definition is, their marriage works because they figured it out. Heart Like a Wheel is based on that back and forth between the two of them. And I think Bo Bridges is terrific in this. This is a great example of a, a movie where I can watch this movie, get completely absorbed, love the story, love the characters. I don't give a shit about drag racing. It is utterly uninteresting to me, but doesn't matter because it matters to the characters. I don't give a damn anything about the history of fashion design, but Phantom Thread is a brilliant film because the director, writer, producers find a way to make those characters in that setting interesting. I have no interest in drag racing whatsoever, but after 15 minutes of these two actors working against each other, they could have been making pinball machines. It doesn't matter. And even though you kind of know where it's going, you, the journey to how she got there is compelling enough. It's it's a well-made, handsome biopic, but it certainly doesn't uh, break out of that mold in any way. It feels almost documentary. And I think some of Kaplan's early work kind of has that Jonathan Demi blue collar, no judgment thing going on that I really like. Uh, Hoyt Axton gives a great performance as her dad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Leo Rossi as her fiance slash potential husband. And uh, there's a young Anthony Edwards as her son. It's good stuff, man. So this next one is an early feature from Jeff Canyu. We'll talk about much more for a controversial film he made later in the decade. But this is a uh, pot boiler that was uh, meant to exploit the star power of John Schneider hot on the heels of Dukes of Hazard. We are, of course, talking about Eddie Macon's run. My name is Eddie Macon. I'm an escaped convict. If I get caught, I'll spend the rest of my life in jail. Eddie Macon was a simple man, working hard to make an honest living. But he fought for what was his, and they put him away. Now he's got to run 100 miles across an unfriendly land to reach his family and the safety of the Mexican border. Kirk Douglas, John Schneider, in a life-or-death chase across Texas. Eddie Macon's run. This is one of those movies, I'm sure everybody has one or two or 10 or 40, of I saw it young and I couldn't, for the life of me, remember anything about it, like what the title was. So I'm rewatching it for the show and I thought, oh, I have seen this. This isn't bad. You know, we, we talk a lot about how this era, the early 80s, has a ton of movies that feel like they were made greenlit specifically because they were chasing a sort of heartland audience. I think a lot of it came from Smokey and the Bandit. And a lot of good films did come from that. You know, Schneider is put upon. He's a guy who the minor infraction that he does then gets escalated. And it's clear that the system is just designed to keep burying these guys further and further. So he's trying to dig himself out and do the right thing and then eventually just breaks because he wants to get back to his family and he knows it's unjust. There's a crazy scene in the middle of the movie where he takes a left turn into this this family like uh, believes he's a cattle rustler and you've got Tom Noonan and J.O. Sanders. And man, that sequence gets weird for a few minutes. It I expected Hambone to come running by. <laughs> <laughs> um, there is a woman that he meets who clearly would love to spend some time with him, but respects the fact that he's married and he's a good guy, so he doesn't do anything. But Lee Purcell is Jilly Buck, I think, uh, gives a really good performance. She's actually pretty strong in it. You know, he's written from the very beginning to be all shucks likable who just made a simple mistake and shouldn't be punished so harshly. So you know exactly where it's going. It is an entertaining 90 some minutes. Yeah, and Kirk Douglas is pretty good in it. Schneider didn't really get a fair shake. Like looking at him here, he's pretty good as a lead and he does what the film asks him to do. There's nothing that he 
lets the film down doing like it's he doesn't stumble at all it's just he's like what happens for an actor like him is like once you're established that you are a tv icon uh it's really hard for people to accept you as a movie person and and some actors are obviously able to do it flip back and forth people who are like 80 percent known for television often have a lot of trouble doing that if you do like this film and you also like Jeff Kanyu. The good news is there's a movie coming a little later this decade called Tough Guys that is like the much more polished final version of what I think he was trying to do here. And he also did a movie called Gotcha. We will get to all of those. Um, I'm excited about this next one simply because this is a film that kind of like Cat People, I have had a long relationship of rewatching. And every time I go back to it, I have a very different reaction to it. Tony Scott's The Hunger. There is a choice between mortality and everlasting life, between ordinary emotion and unearthly passion, between the everyday and the unimaginable. But there is a price. It is called The Hunger. Catherine Deneuve, David Bowie, Susan Sarandon, The Hunger. The debut feature of the late, great Tony Scott is the stylish but... A little hollow horror film. Catherine Deneuve as an ageless vampire. David Bowie as her ancient and suddenly aging lover. And Susan Sarandon as a doctor who gets embroiled in their doomed love affair. It's funny. This is one of those movies where the opening sequence has such a strong visual imprint that you pretty much know right away what you're in for. And the use of the Bauhaus song, Bella Lugosi's Dead There, is pretty iconic. I actually thought it was a song created for the movie because of how perfectly it fits. And it was only years later that I realized, no, that's just Bauhaus. And, and Tony Scott, as he so often did, married a perfect soundtrack to the image that he created. And although I do think the film is um, lacking a little bit in humanity and, and passion, it's kind of icy cold. It's still pretty fascinating, and it does capture a few really creepy ideas. I feel like Whitley Stryber films in general are always interesting, but kind of a miss. Whether it's Wolfen or this or Communion, there's always images or ideas or genuinely creepy beats. But I don't know that I've ever seen anything associated with Whitley Stryber's name that worked completely. It feels like Tony Scott said, well, I'm going to make a horror film, but... To me, horror is a little bit low. I mean, a lot of this movie looks like a perfume commercial. I remember reading in Fangoria, and boy, this was a common thread throughout a lot of the early 80s, an interview with Dick Smith where he talked about being very upset with Tony Scott about the way he chose to shoot all the work Dick Smith did for the last act of this film. When you look at the movie, it's clear that Tony Scott wasn't really interested in making a monster movie. Right. He's making a classically doomed romance. I think there was a common thread for a lot of makeup guys where they would do all this work and then they would get it on set, and then the filmmaker wouldn't really know how to shoot it or what to do with it. This was a great example of that. Uh, this movie was notorious, notorious in the early 80s as a video rental for kids who would get it past their parents, boys in particular would get it past their parents, because Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon spend a fair amount of uh, the middle of the movie naked. It is shot beautifully, and certainly it made an impression on 13-year-old me. There's no question about that. This one kind of fell into the category like the entity for me, uh, you know, like I knew it was about grown up sexuality and that made it feel a little bit more taboo, but a lot of it bored me. I, I find it more interesting now, obviously, that I'm a grown up. I, I, as a horror fan, I can't help but think it's got a lot of dead air, a very beautiful dead air, very good performances. 
I think it was definitely the era of the romantic vampire again. I think uh, Badham's Dracula kind of ushered that back in. And this movie is unafraid of the notion of steering into the romance side of it. David Bowie is beautiful bait on the hook for that opening act. Like you can tell that that's one of the reasons Deneuve has him there is because he can lure young women home and because he is so appealing and alluring. And I think she sees that in Susan Sarandon. It's interesting that for Deneuve, there's no difference. Deneuve is just interested in the person. Oh, she's icy, brutal. Like the film doesn't really posit her as a villain. Although, you know, you'll draw that conclusion yourself. I also enjoyed the small supporting performances by the great Cliff DeYoung and the late, Dan Hedaya as a detective. But I think it's an impressive, sexy, uh, stylish horror film. Our next movie might be our buried treasure of the week. I have not conferred with my partner. Let's talk about Robert Duvall's directorial debut, Angelo, My Love. I feel like there's several movies this month that could only have been made by one person at one time in one way. And that's Liquid Sky. It's definitely Angelo, My Love. It's definitely Screwballs. Oh, my God. Yes. No, this movie, it kind of reminds me in terms of why it was made of uh, Wild Style. I guess evidently Duval saw this kid in the park one day and just decided he needed to make a movie about him and his life. And when you watch this film, it's hard to tell what's real and what's fiction. And it kind of reminds me in that way of the Florida Project from last year, because it all hinges on this kid. He is the most fascinating, charismatic, dynamic character. And the world that he lives in, which is the Romani community in New York, it's fucking fascinating. Florida Project is a good touchstone for this. He must retrieve a beloved ring from some Russian crooks. Plot-wise, like Wild Style, it's not the, the narrative is not the, the key point here. It's Duval, who also wrote the screenplay, replicating this kid's daily routine, how he got there, how he plans to survive. You also have this kind of sad empathy because it's like, yeah, you're a charming little thief, but that's not going to last very long. And I, I'm worried in two or three years you're not adorable anymore and you're just going to be some guy trying to pull a fast buck on the street. And this is the first film Duval directed. He wouldn't direct again until The Apostle. It feels like the kind of movie where he ran into this kid in his life and realized, if I don't do this, nobody's going to. This kid does not fit in a normal structure, not not in a school, not in a normal social structure. He doesn't fit. I wish that Duval had gone back, say, 15 years later and found Angelo and made another movie because I... I'm dying to know how this kid ended up and how this world then evolved for him because I do. I got invested by the end. Like you really become invested in this kid being okay. Angelo, my love, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, all right. It is, uh, it is time for Lone Wolf McQuaid. Chuck Norris is Lone Wolf McQuaid, a Texas lawman who keeps the peace his way. Your record is unrivaled, but my kind of ranger is a model citizen, teller in the community, goes to church, he lives clean, and he's got 11 wife and kids. But your lone wolf attitude is going to change. Lone Wolf McQuaid. Rated PG. Did you know that Chuck Norris lobbied the MPAA to give them a, a PG after he got an R for this film? It's a ridiculous PG. This is one of the reasons the PG-13 had to be created. People always blame Spielberg, and they always try to pin it on two specific films. They try to blame it on Indiana Jones and Gremlins, as if those are the reason that the whole rating was created. This conversation had been going on for, for years, and there had been a real push to create another middle rating. 
And it was not just in response to two films. This is a perfect example where this movie is not a PG. They say fuck in this movie. They're killing people in this movie. There's violence in this movie. There's plenty of stuff in this movie that no kid needs to sit through. It's basically a big screen prequel to Walker, Texas Ranger. Yeah, but done by somebody who took a lot of really shitty mescaline and then watched the spaghetti western. This thing is directed by a crazy person who thinks he's making Once Upon a Time in the West. Why is this thing so densely plotted? He's out for revenge on the scum who hurt his daughter. It's not only densely plotted, it is the most overscored movie of the 1980s. There's a scene in this movie where Chuck Norris gets mad at Barbara Carrera for cleaning his house that reveals him to be a seven-year-old boy wrapped in an ugly werewolf's body. It's a ridiculous character set against a ridiculous bad guy played by David Carradine. The only thing that kept me from turning this movie off was, oh, David Carradine. Oh, oh my God, that's Bill Sanderson. Oh, Leon Isaac Kennedy. There's some good character actors in this movie, but it doesn't just feel like a TV show. It feels like seventh season of a TV show. Seriously, Steve Carver, uh, the stuff that he'd done before was Big Bad Mama and Drum, and then he did Eye for an Eye with Chuck Norris. I think he genuinely thinks he's making better movies. And this film feels to me like the ultimate expression of that, where he must have thought he was making the showdown of all showdowns. When they get to the end of this movie and Carradine and Chuck Norris throw some silly kicks at one another, and you realize that contractually, neither of them is allowed to win by direct contact because they're both egotistical ding-dongs. It's just ludicrous. There's not a fight in this movie that matters. There's not an action scene in this movie that lands. And I'm telling you, man, that score is wall-to-wall insanity. I actually want this soundtrack because I can't believe it was on a Chuck Norris film. Yo, let me ask you this. What would this rate on the Drew's dad scale? Oh, my dad fucking loved this movie. Oh, my God, did he love this movie. How did I know? Big hit in my house because my dad was a big kung fu fan. You got to remember, my dad was a white dude who did judo. This is his wheelhouse, man. (laughs) Uh, A lot of Arnold Schwarzenegger's movies are bad, but they're made entertaining because Arnold Schwarzenegger is entertaining. I don't get that from Chuck Norris. He is a dour, unlikable, unpleasant person in his films. So when they get to be very dreary and paint-by-numbers action movies, I can't even look to a lead actor and be like, well, he's kind of fun. My apologies. Chuck Norris can suck an egg. Scott, in 15 seconds, give me the logline description of James Toback's Exposed. A girl from Wisconsin comes to New York to be a fashion model. She meets some boys. Things don't work out. Then she goes overseas and somehow thwarts a terrorist plot of some sort. Yeah, that, that left turn you took there in the middle. Oh, Let's back oh, up oh, for a wait, second. Was that where? Where she comes to New York from Wisconsin to be a model? No, no, no. I'm, I'm with you so far. Although Natasha Hinsky is the Wisconsin farm girl. Loses me a little, but okay, I'll go with you. So she moves to New York. Fashion model, I get that, and then... Harvey Keitel and terrorist plot. What? Yeah, yeah, that's what happens in Exposed. Ready for everything, anything, to do whatever has to be done. Did you think I was all talk? Everything you've told me is a lie. 
you're not afraid. Should I be? Most people would be afraid. I'm not like most people. Nastasia Kinski. Rudolf Nureyev. Exposed. God damn this movie. All right, um, look, uh, let, this movie is terrible. I don't think it has anything to do with the fact that James Toback is one of the biggest scumbags on the planet. I think the movie is terrible precisely because he's the biggest scumbag on the planet. This movie, like many of James Toback's films, just plays a straight confession. Every male character in this movie is horrible. He punches a woman in the face playing a professor. He cast himself. There's not one person in this movie who treats a woman as a human being. Every single guy in this movie comes at Natasha Kinski, tiny, ugly wiener waving, doing their best to get in her pants, and they are all disgusting. James Toback, as her college professor, is pathetic. It is word for word the shit that the women who talk about being abused by Toback, it's word for word his playbook. He doesn't hide anything about who he is or how pathetic his approach to women is. He is one of those guys who believes that the count is what matters, that the pursuit is all that is important, and that anything you do to get a woman in bed is okay because it's all about that. This movie has a repulsive slime on it. And on top of that, makes no goddamn sense. No, no. I mean, first it's boring and very simplistic, and then it gets really ridiculous. The dialogue is atrocious. Uh, Almost everybody, Kinski does the best she can with this tired garbage, but Rudolf Nureyev, oh my God. Rudolf Nureyev in this is constantly harassing her. He chases her on the street. He won't take no for an answer. And it's Rudolf Nureyev. It is bizarre watching him play this character who is so painfully, pathetically desperate about things for no good reason. And then when it's finally revealed that he's a spy and that he's chasing Harvey Keitel, none of it makes sense. You have no idea why the fashion model has to be involved. It's just crap. Fuck this movie. Fuck James Toback. We gave it four more minutes than it deserves. We'll cover him again in 87 with the pickup artist. Fuck him. Now we move on to a film about fucking called Losing It. Dave's been itching for it. Woody can't stand it. If I can wait, why can't you wait? Spider will do anything for it. Spider! Stop him! There comes a time when nothing seems more important than losing it. We're going to be as crude as we want, as silky as we want, and as gross as we want. How was I supposed to know that you was your sister? This is the last word about the first time. Losing it. From director Curtis Hansen, who most of you will know for L.A. Confidential, and uh, written by a guy named Bill Norton, who I am a fan of because of his film, More American Graffiti. Um, this is definitely a film that you can see the long shadow of American Graffiti hanging over. You can tell that they wanted this to be more than a Porky's knockoff. You've got Jackie Earl Haley, who at that point, I think, brought a certain amount of weight with him. He was a he was a really strong young actor coming off a run of really good movies. You had John Stockwell, who I think ended up being a really good actor and a strong director. You have one of my favorite young character actors, a guy named John P. Navin Jr. When he was a kid, that guy was just awesome. You might not know his name, but you know his face, and he steals this movie, John Navin. And uh, a little guy named Tom Cruise. 
they are the four friends who go to Mexico for a weekend, and that's the whole plot. They just want to go to Mexico and get laid. That's not entirely true. They also want to go to Tijuana to get their car uh, souped up to get fireworks and to get Spanish fly. It's Tijuana in all its decadent glory. And it's sort of that idea of the Americans who pour across the border looking for something and the Mexicans who push back because they're really tired of it. There's some fun stuff in that. How much of this film was shot in Mexico? Oh, I'm guessing not a not a second. Not a frame. Given that it is 1983 and we're dealing with a, a low comedy, there are a fair number of unpleasant Mexican stereotypes. But on the other hand, there are also some that they almost, like Curtis Hansen, almost seem to make a point of, okay, if, if he's the nasty bully and he's the dirty cop, we need to have three or four Mexican characters who aren't. I think there's a definite perspective in the film that the Americans are wrong. There's something gross about coming over here and treating this as a party zone as opposed to a place where people live. And look, there's a difference between characters doing something in a movie and the movie endorsing it. Honest, I'm not trying to challenge you because I didn't hate this movie, but how many times you laugh in this movie? I don't think it's a particularly good film. I think it's a movie that is sincerely trying to be about more than just getting your dick wet. And at this time with these kinds of movies, that aim comes from the Curtis Hansen, Bill Norton thing, where these are better filmmakers than that. And they know that there has to be some character. And I think that's why they cast it the way they did. Shelley Long plays a woman they pick up on the way to Mexico who is running from her husband and is looking for a quickie divorce and becomes sort of embroiled in their long night. She and Tom Cruise have a pretty easy chemistry, and it's weird watching the two of them together. She's clearly the more experienced actor at this point and the person that they're putting more weight on dramatically. It's Cruise right before he becomes Tom Cruise. Playing uh, an oddly insecure young man, that in and of itself is kind of novel. It's it's better than most of its ilk, but it's not very funny. Rick Rosovich keeps showing up as the big military guy who they keep getting in fights with. And that was kind of Rosovich was just a meathead at this point. It's weird because I don't think I really tuned into Rosovich until Roxanne. But now looking back at the early 80s, man, that guy was everywhere for a while. Yeah. Uh, you know who else was everywhere in the 80s? Nicholas freaking Cage, ladies and gentlemen. Let's talk about Valley Girl. Okay, so he's awesome. <laughs> Valley Girl. She's out there somewhere. This is the story of a boy from Hollywood who never dreamed the girl he'd want most was down here. Hello. It's the story of a girl from the Valley who never dreamed she'd ever be seen with a boy from over here. Like I'm not getting out of this car. All right, but when they attack the car, save the radio. This is the story of Randy and Julie, the way they come together. And the people who try to pull them apart. This geek that she's with could scar her for life. Julie's cool. Randy's hot. She's from the valley. He's not. Valley girl. Okay, so if Losing It is an okay example of the teen sort of sex comedy, I'm going to say that Valley Girl is on the very, very high end of the scale, one of the best teen films of the 80s. The fancy girl, Deborah Foreman, meets cute with Nicolas Cage, who is like kind of a anti-establishment punker who doesn't listen to anybody's rules, but he's a little softer than you picture as an early 80s punk. Very basic plot-wise, both leads are great. The supporting cast is good. Like a lot of these movies, I wouldn't call it like laugh out loud funny, but it's very amiable. And, and it's really honest. I think one of the things that Martha Coolidge does so well in this movie, and I think she directs the living hell out of this thing. It is beautifully made. She nails the very real attitude that exists in Los Angeles that 
L.A. and Hollywood is one world, and the Valley is this completely different planet. Going back and forth, which is seriously 15 minutes, is like going to outer space. It's spot on how right they get it. There's a lot of kind of cattiness, but the movie's not mean about the culture issue. There is some real nuance to these characters, and that makes some of the pedestrian jokes fine. I think there's a very real attitude on his part that he doesn't want her to just be a tourist. He's not somebody's uh, rebellion. Deborah Foreman, I feel like she got pretty relegated into a certain kind of film very quickly. This performance, Shane Cage, they're doing equal work in this movie. They're equally good. There's so many ways, like we talked about in Joysticks last episode. I love Corian Borer, but if I had to listen to that for 90 minutes, I'd go nuts. And Deborah Foreman pulls that back, and she does have a lot of the, you know, grody to the max. And But it's not italicized, and it's not everywhere. How good is E.G. Daly in this? Oh, E.G. Daly is adorable. You know who else is great? Michael Bowen. And there's a great exchange late in the film between Nicolas Cage and Michael Bowen is now back with the Valley Girl. And they're going into the theater and Michael Bowen says, is this movie in 3D? And Nicolas Cage says, no, but your face is. (laughs) I like Michelle Myrink quite a bit in this. I think she's really terrific for a double feature this month. Lee Purcell, who showed up in Eddie Macon's run, is also in this in a small role. I also really like her parents, Colleen Camp and Frederick Forrest as her folks. I love that they are the counterculture hippie parents who have now become suburban, but they haven't totally stopped being who they are. And it's not a joke. That's just who they are. Almost any other movie, they'd be like Chong and Andrea Martin in in a cloud of smoke. But no, they're well-written side characters. And I feel happy saying this because I have been a little tough on Frederick Forrest in his recent films. He has a lot of screen time and they're great. They really are. This has a fantastic soundtrack. I caught uh, Psychedelic Furs, Modern English, and Men at Work. Uh, I'm sure there are others. Uh, I definitely like Valley Girl. All right. So we're going to we're going to go from a super charming young woman at the center of Valley Girl to a wannabe charming, but not quite as as successful uh, woman at the center of Flashdance. You walk out there and the music starts and you feel it. Body just moves. It's a world of music. It's a world of magic. It's a world of love. It's a world of laughter. It's a world of desires. It's a world of dreams. It's the world of the flash dance. It's as far as you can go. Flash dance, rated R. This is, of course, one of the most iconic, I guess, movies of the early 80s. The, the you know, the dance number was satirized everywhere. It was a huge movie. I don't like this movie. <laughs> I think this movie's one of the dumbest fucking things that was ever a monster cultural sensation. The first ever collaboration between Bruckheimer and Simpson, and it really just seems like their marching orders were make it as facile and empty as you can, as long as it looks pretty. No marching orders. This is Bruckheimer and Simpson figuring out the style that they then rode for the next 25 years. Nobody's giving them marching orders. This is them putting together that MTV is finally a cultural force. This movie, more than almost anything we've talked about so far, is, I think, the first real MTV hit. There's nothing to this film. Written by Joe Esterhaus, who was scrambling to get away from a journalism career that was on fire because he was a piece of trash journalist, this movie is junk. First of all, what is this club, Scott? What club in what world is full of blue-collar guys looking for a beer watching performance art. 
where there's no stripping. It's not stripping, it's performance art. It is the most ludicrous version of a club. I would get this movie if it was just a movie about stripping, about a woman who is driven to pay the bills, but who wants to dance for the sake of art. I get that film. I don't know what flash dancing is because there were no clubs like this. There are no clubs like this. Nobody would go see this. What world is this set in? The Bruckheimer Simpson films also suffer from like delusions of depth. And it's like, if you're going to put a young woman in a steel mill, fine. Do the extra legwork to show what somebody actually does in a steel mill. It's interesting that this and uh, The Hunger both came out this month because I think of Adrian Lyne and Tony Scott as very similar in some ways in that they are both very, very obsessive about the surface of their films. They both like strobe lights. And I think that Scott eventually started to dig deeper in terms of screenplay. I'm not sure I think Adrian Lyne ever did. I think Adrian Lyne is a guy that he was perfect for perfume commercials. Narrative, not so much. After nine and a half weeks, he found his niche. Yeah, well, and look, this is where Bruckheimer and Simpson began. And and honestly, their films are all super, super formulaic. Old, old formula dressed up in whatever the current style is. Their movies are as surface as surface gets, which is why I think Flashdance launched them into the stratosphere. This is the perfect Simpson-Bruckheimer movie. And if you love this movie there's a very good chance that the majority of their filmography works for you. I have major problems with Bruckheimer Simpson's filmography, and this movie is an exact reason why. Won the Oscar for Oh, What a Feeling uh, was a huge unexpected hit. Jennifer Beals, I think, does the best she can with a paper-thin screenplay. Michael Nori, she and he have the on-screen chemistry of oil and water. If you like it for the surface level, if you like it for the female empowerment themes, that's fine. It's a silly movie. I get why it was a big hit at the time, I guess. Uh, It also, worthy of note, was a very influential film in the world of fashion. Uh, You know what film was not influential in the world of fashion? Something Wicked This Way Comes. That's my segue, and I'm sticking to it. Then rang the bells both loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. Where do you come from? The dust. Where do you go to? The grave. Yes. We are the hungry ones. Your torments call us like dogs in the night. And we do feed. And feed well. Tell me where the boys are hiding. And I can make you young again. Ray Bradbury's fantasy tale of light and darkness is getting closer. Something wicked this way comes. I wish I liked this movie more. And I just wish that it had felt like more of a cohesive whole. The ending is a disaster. Why don't you explain to our listeners why specifically the ending is so clunky? A lot of this is a fairly straight adaptation of Ray Bradbury's book. And the book is a small town, two young boys. One of them has a father who's a librarian and a carnival rolls into town. And the carnival is clearly supernatural and uh, wants something from the people in that small town. It's a wonderful book. The movie builds to just a disaster of a third act where you can't even truly tell what's happening. And it's one of those films. It feels a lot like watcher in the woods, which was an earlier Disney horror film where 
They couldn't figure out how to make it work. This feels the same way. Like there are 15 people trying to decide how to end this thing. There is a scene that comes before that third act, though, that takes place in a library where Jonathan Price, who plays the uh, leader of the carnival, comes face to face with Jason Robard. And for that 10 minutes, I think it's as good as this movie could ever hope to be. And it's a great sequence. Uh, It does have a few interesting standout moments. I thought the boys were pretty cool. I thought they had a nice chemistry together. There's some supporting work from Diane Ladd and Pam Greer. I'd be really curious to know what like your boys would think of this movie because they I could see them either loving it or just after 10 minutes going, dad, no way. The Ray Bradbury book, you can see how it influenced sort of that whole Amblin vibe. It's sort of in Gremlins and E.T. and all those films in sort of the the vibe that's in those movies. It is surprising that making this movie at the moment those films were all kind of happening, that they missed the mark as much as they did. But I think Jack Clayton is from an earlier generation of filmmakers and had a very different approach to things. I don't know that he was the right fit. Very stagey and old-fashioned. Last I heard, there is a remake uh, in development uh, by Seth Graham Smith, the producer of It!, if that is to come to pass, that would be I'd be very interested to see a new adaptation of this book. They have tried a lot of time. I know Bob Zemeckis wanted to do it for a long time. It would not surprise me to see somebody finally get it made because it is beloved. It is worth seeing. Just brace yourself because there's parts of it that just play. Yeah. Speaking of classic horror films, we're going to close out April of 1983 with a long requested title, a title you guys have been asking about for two years now. Horror fans will debate over this forever and ever and ever. This film opened in 1981 in Detroit for what by most accounts was a cast and crew screening. Then the director went back and did work on it. That 1981 screening to me doesn't count as the finished version of The Evil Dead. Stephen King, author of Carrie, said, Evil Dead is the most ferociously original horror film of the year. If you think he's kidding, see for yourself. They got up on the wrong side of the grave. Evil Dead from New Line Cinema. What was your first experience with that ad? Uh, The ad upset me. I saw the poster and I saw it in print. It was immediately striking. I have a list of maybe seven or eight films that have ever upset me in the theater. I left feeling like I had been abused I'm jealous. I saw Evil Dead 2 in the theaters, but I did not see this until I saw this on VHS. Uh, And like most movie geeks, I would grab the Friday newspaper and open the weekend section and just look at the reviews and all the new ads. And then I open it up and there's that blue ad with a big Stephen King quote on it. I must have looked at it for five minutes. I was just enraptured by it. As most horror fans will know, the Evil Dead is about five friends who go to a cabin and unwittingly awaken a demon Sam Raimi, who you'll, of course, know from the Spider-Man films and Darkman and Quick and the Dead, countless good films, the earliest stages of his filmmaking career, you can see the energy, the quick cut editing, the fast paced, tongue in cheek, three stooges approach to horror that can also turn on a dime and be legitimately scary. Well, here's the thing. I don't think of the evil that the first one is funny at all. A lot of people, because of Evil Dead 2 and because of Army of Darkness, because the series has gotten progressively funnier, that is what defines Evil Dead, and I'm okay with that. I think the large majority of what is Evil Dead is tempered by humor. The first Evil Dead's a fucking nightmare machine. It is 
unrelentingly ugly and it really felt like something diseased was happening in that cabin and i love that but at the same time it was abusive it was the ad that lured me in it was the same thing i saw that stephen king ad that quote was so great that we got my friend's older brother to take us he was angry at us at the end of the movie because he was not a horror fan he thought it was going to be goofy or whatever and by the end of that film, he was mad at us, and he told our parents that we'd gone to see it. He ratted us out. I got in trouble for it. Man, it was worth it. The influence that Sam Raimi's visual style had on a generation of filmmakers begins here, and it begins very clearly here. He is a guy who from day one knew what his visual style was. Yeah. You see something that costs a lot of money, and you don't ever stop to wonder, gee, how'd they do that? But there are moments in Evil Dead where you're just like in a fleeting moment. It doesn't ruin your appreciation of the film. But in a few fleeting moments, you're like, damn, how'd they do that? That just like lays a an extra foundation of love beyond. It's just a fun horror movie. You're beyond that. You're deeply impressed by how you could pull something off with so little uh, in, in money and time and experience. I also get the feeling that like early Peter Jackson, there was no line he wouldn't cross. Anything can happen in these movies. Yeah. The Evil Dead and other films of its style, it is a direct reaction to everybody's making Slasher Part 3, Slasher Part 4, Slasher Part 6. I don't want to do that. I want to do something that's unique in a landscape of mostly copycats and sequels. I want to do something unique. And that's why films like Evil Dead, Hellraiser, Reanimator, they stick out from this decade because they were not playing it safe like most of the studio horror films were. The Bruce Campbell performance in this movie is very raw. I don't think he became Bruce Campbell until the second film. But what I love here and what Raimi clearly realized is he could do anything to Bruce Campbell and Bruce Campbell would let him. And there is a real beautiful thing that happens here where midway through the movie, you realize this guy is made of silly putty and Sam Raimi's just kicking the shit out of him. Desert Island choice. Evil Dead 1 or Evil Dead 2? Evil Dead 2. Well, why? I find Evil Dead 2 is the perfect blend of humor and horror for me. I think Army of Darkness immediately tips too far in the other direction. I think Evil Dead 2 is that perfect sweet spot where I get everything I love about Raimi in one movie. Could not disagree with that. I think they're both five-star horror films, and therefore uh, I will not pick one over the other. But since I do probably like horror slightly more than comedy, I... Uh, but yeah, if you've never seen it and you've been curious uh, about this horror film called The Evil Dead, just to have a ball. It's so much fun. I absolutely love The Evil Dead. Love, love, love. It felt like something I survived, and I have always revered it for that. Listen, guys, next time we've got one of the weirdest remakes of all time. We've got Molly Ringwald in Outer Space in 3D. We've got Cheech and Chong at their very saddest. And yeah, we got fucking Ewoks. <laughs> all that and Bill Cosby, too. You cannot miss May of 1983.